This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Uh, and we're going to do a little bit of ancient history today. So almost instantly when someone mentions Egypt, uh, the image of the pyramids at Giza sort of jumped to mind. But Giza is not the only site in Egypt where pyramids exist. And frankly, it was not the first place in Egypt where pyramids existed. Uh, northwest of the city of Memphis sits the Saqqara Necropolis. And that has a an older claim to this particular piece of history than the Giza site by about 100 years. So we are going to talk a little bit today about uh, King Yasser. That is one version of the pronunciation. His name is spelled D-J-O-S-E-R, and you will hear it pronounced in a number of different ways. Um, us working with basically a dead language here, we have consulted many different sources, and we have gotten many different variations on this name, from uh, Joser to Jezer to, you know, I mean, you could almost pick your pronunciation and someone out there in some field of expertise on it has used it. I think we're going to go with Yasser. So, as often is the case with ancient history, uh, similarly to we, we don't have a consensus on how to say his name. We don't have a total consistent consensus on the biography of Yasser. Um, you will, by the way, also see the spelling with a Z sometimes. Yeah, the, as we say often, the further you go back, the less consistent the information gets. And this is definitely the case at this point. So keep that in mind as we go forward. We'll try to point out the, the parts that are really inconsistent. Uh, Yasser was a king in ancient Egypt's third dynasty in the 27th century BCE. So during the period that was known as sort of the Old Kingdom. His parents were probably Kazakemwe and Queen uh, Nemeatop, although that is also not entirely certain. At this point, it's so long ago that I went, I, I rarely feel the need to double check anything that you've handed me. <laughs> but I went 27th century BCE. Let me make sure that's right. <laughs> For what it's worth, I did that to myself several times. Where I went, did I put those numbers in wrong? Yeah, it's totally uh-huh. right. So the line of succession that led to Yasser's reign isn't 100% clear. There's a lot of dispute as to the timeline of 
basically all of the third dynasty pharaohs. And so far, there's not nearly enough solid evidence to clarify things with certainty. There's also the problem of different sources being inconsistent with one another. So we have sources that are sort of the official established sources that we use for for the uh, the line of succession back that far, but they don't agree with each other. Yeah, and just I want to do a quick sidebar on the word pharaohs. Uh, I, I don't use it so much in this outline because that's not a word that was actually being used. I think it started to be used somewhere around the... Um, I want to say the 18th dynasty. Don't quote me on that. I'm going from memory. So if you're like, why are they saying king all the time and not pharaoh? That's kind of why, just out of uh, respect for sort of that historical divide. But it is possible, going back to Yazer's uh, ascension to the throne, that he took the throne after Nebka and that Nebka was, in fact, his brother. However... Uh, Nebka's identity and his position in the chronology of ancient Egypt also remain sources of debate. Uh, however, there is also another pharaoh, Sanakht, who may have preceded Josser. Just to muddle things further, there's also the possibility that those two men were the same person. There are historians that say they were the same person and the historians that say they're two different people. Supporting the idea that the two of them were the same person is a source that shows his Horus name or his ruler name, which was Sanakht. And that was followed by a name which is partially obscured, but ends the same way as Nebka. So to give a little bit more uh, context for that and a quick word on names in ancient Egypt, uh, names were considered to be incredibly important during this time. It was routine for a person to have and use multiple names as various situations warranted. If you've read any Egyptian mythology, uh, sometimes to know a person's true name is to have power over them. So that's one of the reasons that names would shift a little bit. Uh, but Horus names were some of the earliest king names, and they were always written as part of a serek, which was sort of a formal rectangular framed representation, um, almost like a seal. And the idea was that this naming convention likened the ruler to Horus and it put him forth as a physical representation of that god. And so he kind of had uh, a, a godlike position that entitled him to rule. So today's focus, Yasser, for example, had the Horus name of Nejeriket. I've also uh, consulted people and heard it pronounced Nejeriket. Very subtle, but different. Uh, and that means divine of body. This is why in the case of the Nebka and Sanakt situation, they could potentially both be naming the same person. So back to the timeline. The Turin King List is a papyrus that has been dated to the time of Ramses II, and he reigned from 1279 to 1213 BCE, which is during the Middle Kingdom. This places Nebka at the beginning of the Third Dynasty, with Yasser being his successor. And uh, another piece of evidence that supports that lineage is uh, the Abdios King List. This is also called the Abdios Table, and it's carved on the walls at the Temple of Seti I, and it lists 76 rulers of ancient Egypt in these three rows of 38 cartouches each. So the, the bottom row is kind of a repeat row, but the top two rows feature the names of kings, and it echoes the Turin King List in that it features Nebka first and then Yasser. Also a pharaoh list, and it's from the Ramesside period, and that's the period of rule that included 11 different kings named Ramses in the 19th and 20th dynasties. This table uh, 
is different from the other two. It names Yasser as the first pharaoh of the third dynasty, following his possible father, Kasakimui. And there are other uh, various pieces of evidence and examples. These are just three, so we could kind of give you the flavor of, like, this doesn't always match up. Uh, according to the Turin King list, for example, Yasser's reign went on for 19 years, though other sources suggest it may have been longer and that the ways of marking the years are not necessarily the same from source to source. Uh, he does appear to have extended Egypt's borders south to Aswan, and it's actually in Aswan that the first evidence that linked the name Yasser to the king's Horus name, Najeriket, was discovered. An inscription that was found in Aswan on the island of Sahel claims that the swath of land south of Aswan was granted to the priests of the god Knum of Elephantine by the ruler, that ruler being Yasser. And it uses Yasser's name in both ways, both his Horus name and the name Yasser. And it claims that the land grant was in exchange for the priest's god ending a seven-year drought in Egypt. And this carving is a forgery. Uh, it is legally bunk in terms of property rights. This is basically someone claiming that they had authority from the king when they did not. However, uh, it does establish this historical connection between the two monikers. Regardless of exactly how things went in terms of the timeline and the the succession of the, the kings, Yasser's reign does mark the beginning of a period of great peace and economic growth for Egypt. The country's resources were organized on a really grand scale, allowing for massive projects that employed lots of skilled laborers. Architecture became a cultural and governmental focus. So it should be no surprise... Uh, that under Yasser's leadership, major advancements were made in the area of stone architecture. And this is really why he remains the most prominent figure of the Third Dynasty and even the Old Kingdom. He's kind of one of the most famous of the old, old kings of Egypt uh, because he is credited with the building of Egypt's first pyramid. And before we dig into how that project came to be and what it is, we're going to have a quick word from a sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. 
So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So one of the main shifts of the third dynasty from the second dynasty was this move to Memphis as a royal burial spot. This is in part due to the fact that this was also the place where Egypt's first known pyramid emerged. Uh, prior to the reign of Yasser, though, the Saqqara site, which sits about 15 miles or 24 kilometers to the southwest of Cairo, and it's part of the Memphis necropolis, was already a burial ground. The oldest burials in the Saqqara cemetery sit on the north side of the site, and they date back to the earliest times of Egypt's history. Although those are not tombs of kings, but of other high-ranking government officials. The earliest tombs are really pits that are carved into the hard stone of the bedrock and then covered up with other stone. And the entombment design uh, that became favorable or popular eventually evolved into what are called mastabas. These were long, flat buildings with slightly sloped sides. Mastabas had burial chambers that were dug underground beneath them, as well as a number of rooms that could be entered by the living to pay respects for the dead. And the first two dynasties of Egypt buried their kings in Mastabas. South of the oldest tombs is where the Yasser Pyramid was built, and you'll also see it named as the Step Pyramid in some sources. I think that's what I remember it being called uh, when it came up in sort of the, the Egyptian Pyramid overview of school. Initially, uh, his final earthly resting place was planned as a mastaba in line with what earlier leaders had been doing. But uh, Yasser's vizier, Imhotep, is credited with the shift in design that actually wound up creating the first pyramid. So basically, at some point in the process, uh, Imhotep and Yasser decided that they should build a smaller mastaba on top of the first one. And then why not do another and a few more? So eventually, uh, it looked similar to a Mesopotamian ziggurat. Like the Mastabas that were traditional up until Yasser's rule, there's a series of underground tunnels and shafts beneath the base of the pyramid. And trying to suss out their initial design had a number of challenges because, as is so often the case, looters at some point had dug their own tunnels to get to them. And a huge shift in construction techniques also took place in the building of Yasser's tomb. So this project marks the introduction of true stone architecture into the record. And Imhotep is basically credited as its inventor. So prior to this point, most mastabas were made with a combination of primarily mud bricks and some stone. Uh, combining the durability of an all-stone construction with the pre-existing aesthetic taste I sort of love this. Uh, it's like they didn't want to jar people's perception of it too much by making it look completely different, even though they were using different materials. So the rock was actually carved pretty artfully to look like materials that were commonly used prior to that time. So it had a softer look where they would carve reed and wood grain and softer material tones into it. So it would still have that same aesthetic transition. So while we tend to think of pyramids as like singular entities that are self-contained within themselves, uh, they're really more a part of a greater grouping of buildings. They're temples and similar other structures that are part of them also. And Yasser's step pyramid was what set this trend. Yeah, by the time Yasser died in about 2611 BCE, 
The pyramid that Imhotep had been building for him was 204 feet high, which is about 62 meters. It had six stepped layers uh, stacked atop one another. And this complex, to give a sense of what Tracy was talking about when saying this is not a singular building, had swelled to the size of a large town. It took up about 40 acres. Uh, if you do hectares, that's about 16. And it included multiple supporting buildings to serve as temples and other places of worship. Uh, a 30-foot high, so a 10-meter wall, surrounds this vast complex. And this wall actually is fascinating in that it has 14 doors, but only one of them is a real door. The others are presumably aesthetic. The chamber where the ruler was buried was made of pink granite and abutted by beautifully tiled rooms depicting the king in various rituals and ceremonies. Yeah, in one of them, he is apparently running a race, and I don't know why I love that, but I do. <laughs> I think I know why. Yes. Uh, and, of course, uh, as Tracy mentioned earlier, Yasser's burial complex, like so many in Egypt, was eventually looted at some point. The only remaining evidence that we believe to be of the ruler himself is his left foot, which was found in a tunnel. Uh, it's mummified, of course. And also found in the underground passages uh, was the body of a small child, a mummified child, estimated to be about eight years old. And that was in an alabaster coffin. Uh, there were also numerous stone vases, some with names of previous rulers etched into them. There's also a life-sized statue of the ruler that was recovered in the complex during a British exploration of the site in the early half of the 20th century. That statue, which was found in a limestone cellar near the pyramid, is in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo now. And it's the oldest known life-size sculpture from the Egyptian culture. It's believed that this sculpture may have been used in Hebsed festivals, so offerings could be made to it. So the King's Jubilee, which is what the Hebsed was also called, celebrated his reign. When he was alive, this also offered him the opportunity to reaffirm his ability to rule, sort of that he was still this uh, fit and vigorous person that could absolutely handle the job. And then after uh, death, these, this statue presumably was still made offerings. And the idea at that point was that the spirit of the king would partake of the offerings in, you know, a spiritual, otherworldly sense. And then at the end of the day, the attending priests to the king, uh, to the deceased king, would enjoy these offerings in the physical sense. The south tomb of the complex, which is separate from the pyramid, is where the king's removed viscera were stored. His mummy was placed into the pyramid to the north. And one theory about this dual placement, which was being laid to rest in a southern and a northern tomb, was symbolic in that it was representative of the lands of Upper and Lower Egypt. Imhotep, who, as we said, was the grand architect of the tomb, uh, had started life as a commoner, but then had obviously risen to a very trusted position uh, within the government and with Yasser himself. But architecture was not his only talent. He was also an astronomer. He was a scribe. He was a doctor. Uh, long after his death, he was named the patron of scribes. And then even later, uh, in Egypt's late period, he was deified as a god at Memphis. And a priesthood grew in service of him there, focusing on the belief that he served as a bridge between the gods and the healing of humans. And we actually, there's a, a kind of interesting side note in that we are not sure of Imhotep's final resting place. His mummy has never been located. It is believed that he is somewhere 
in uh, Saqqara, in most likely Yasser's pyramid complex. Uh, and there have been various excavations, some of which think that they might have found where Imhotep was laid to rest and others uh, are not sure that we found it yet, but that's sort of an ongoing thing. Uh, we'll talk about it a little more in the next section about sort of the precarious nature of, you know, ancient sites like this and how losing them, we're going to lose the potential to discover some of these, the answers to some of these questions that we have. So Imhotep's final resting place, still the jury is still out and that's still being investigated with various leads uh, in various stages of development. Right. What we do know is that for 2,000 years after the death of Yasser, Imhotep's design styles would be emulated, copied, and revised. They just appear all over the tombs for Egypt's royalty. Yeah, eventually it evolved into that smooth look that we see on like the pyramids at Giza. Uh, but he really set the standard and started that whole architectural upheaval. And we're going to talk about kind of what's going on in the modern day and some restoration efforts around this step pyramid. But before we do, let's have a word from a sponsor. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To return to the world of pyramids, uh, because the water table has risen, there's wind that just routinely sweeps through the Egyptian desert, and there was also an earthquake that measured 5.9 on the Richter scale in 1992, along with, you know, the ordinary passage of time, the Yasser Pyramid started to show really serious wear, and the Egyptian government started to explore ways to help preserve the important historical treasure. The pyramid has been closed to the public and historical experts for decades because it's so delicate and dangerous at this point. 
Yeah, there are definitely some things falling. Uh, however, since 1992, that earthquake sort of put in painful focus the fact that something needed to be done if they were going to really preserve this historic site. And there have been multiple restoration efforts mounted to save the Yasser Pyramid. But this project has constantly been plagued by issues. Um, the ancient structure, as we said, has been in a really precarious state for decades, uh, and multiple teams have been trying to figure out ways that they can preserve it. And occasionally engineering teams have been given access to gather information about the status of the structure. But for the most part, there is still a lot of guessing. Every team that has gone in has sort of found surprises that they did not anticipate. In 2011, a UNESCO report stated that the updates to the structure didn't, quote, absorb any load and that they weren't actually helping with the structural stability. And at one point, uh, a Welsh engineering firm called Syntec was called in. And they specialize in anchor systems for restoration and reinforcement of historical buildings. Uh, for example, they worked on the restoration of Windsor Castle after a fire damaged the structure and some of the art there. During the unrest in Egypt starting in 2011, the project was also plagued by looting and financial issues, and all of the work was briefly suspended. Uh, once Syntec got back to work, they launched this plan to buttress the structure by using a massive balloon to support it from within, because it was really quite dangerous for men to be in there. Uh, and then they were able to implant some anchors to give the step pyramid a little bit of support that it hadn't had previously. A company called Sherbaji is the most recent group contracted to manage the reconstruction of the pyramid. And the competency of the company has unfortunately been called into question. An advocacy group claims that uh, that they've never restored a historical and archaeological site, and thus it's just not the right group for the job. There have also been claims that the company was already other, under investigation for other jobs that weren't properly handled. And I, I feel compelled to say we we don't know the veracity of those claims. Uh, there have been a lot of a lot of accusations leveled, and that is still being investigated. Uh, and in late 2014, more concerns about Sherbaji were raised. Uh, the work being done on the pyramid's facade, which you can see, there are pictures of it, and we'll post some of them on Pinterest, uh, looked to many people to be far too modern and really quite out of step with the rest of the historic site. The texture and the color of the new materials do not really match the rest of the pyramid, uh, the new sections are much smoother and much lighter in color than the surrounding facade. And there's concern that, uh, one, this is uh, adding more to the structure than is normally allowed in the sort of restoration guidelines. I think it's something like 5% new material can be added, and this seems like much more than that. And there's also concern that adding the things that they are adding are actually doing some interior damage to the structure and once again putting too much load on it. In September 2014, the UNESCO World Heritage Center contacted Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities. Concerns about the restoration led them to ask if recommendations that UNESCO issued in 2011 had been followed, and UNESCO also requested a detailed report of the project's status. Mahmoud Aldamadi, who is Egypt's antiquities minister and has been since June of 2014, has defended the work of uh, this group. Uh, Michael Gobriel Farid, I may be mispronouncing that, who is executive director of the project, has told the press that, in fact, the pyramid 
is being restored to its original look and that things are progressing exactly as they should. There haven't been a lot of updates in the last several months. Uh, the fall of 2014 was not that long ago compared to when we are recording this. So we don't at this point know the fate of what the world's oldest pyramid is going to be. Yeah, it's actually uh, the oldest standing stone building, according to some accounts. It's uh, the oldest that we know of, and we we don't know. So I imagine this is one of those things where we're going to get lots of updates in the coming years, which will be interesting, and hopefully it will be good news. Uh, Because if we lose this site, we lose some history that we're still trying to uncover and understand. Uh, So that's the scoop on the first pyramid and uh, King Yasser, who you may have heard about to some degree at some point in school. Uh, I don't think I ever got much on him because he was new to me when I reached adulthood. So there's always something new. Or I I had friends that said, oh, I kind of heard his name in relation in the first pyramid. And that was about it. So hopefully more in-depth info than you had before. And now I also have some listener mail. This one is from uh, our listener, Carolyn, and she wrote us a really fun letter about Hetty Green. And she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, part of my job as an attorney is to conduct legal research on a wide range of topics. Imagine my surprise when researching the issue of domicile, the state an individual resides in for purposes of establishing diversity of citizenship under federal law. When I came across a case involving former podcast topic Hetty Green in the case of State of Texas versus State of Florida, 306 U.S. 398, 1939. After Hetty's son, Edward H.R. Green, died, the states of Texas, Florida, New York, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts fought among themselves over which state Ned was domiciled in at the time of his death. Although he died in New York, Ned owned property and had tangible personal property in Texas, New York, Florida, and Massachusetts when he died. Uh, the reason for this massive legal battle was that each state had a rival claim for the death taxes upon his estate of approximately $44,348,500, which he had inherited from his mother. The case was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1939, which found Ned was domiciled in Massachusetts at the time of his death. Had each of the four states been able to claim estate taxes, the entire uh, $44 million plus would not have been sufficient to cover the tax bill. Hetty would like to have taken any steps to avoid paying taxes while she was alive, but having the entire estate taken uh, in this way, Hetty's probably rolling over in her grave. Knowing background of this case made the morning research and case law analysis much more enjoyable. That is so cool. I never would have stumbled across those levels of detail and probably would have struggled to comprehend because I will confess that when I read legal things, I get a little glassy eyed. Uh, so thanks for breaking that down for us, Carolyn and kind of explaining it and also just bringing it to our attention. So if you would like to write to us about legal things or otherwise, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at com on pinterest.com slash history. And if you want to visit our Spreadshirt store to buy shirts or bags or phone cases or any number of other goodies, you can do so at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to research a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works, type the word pyramid into the search bar and you will get how pyramids work. Uh, it does mention this pyramid, uh, Yasser's pyramid, for a bit. And if you would like to visit us, you can do so at mistinhistory.com. And we've got show notes there. We've got an archive of all of our episodes, uh, a few other little goodies here and there. 
And if you would like to research almost anything your heart desires, you can do that again at our parent site, How Stuff Works, or visit us at mystichistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hi, guys. My name is Sammy J. I've been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.